Welcome to The Roundup, a North Queensland-based medical podcast offering local content for local clinicians. I'm your host, Alyssa Hathaway. I'm a local GP and family planning clinician and head of James Cook University's clinical school here in Mackay on Yui Country. This collaborative podcasting project between Mackay Hospital and Health Service, local clinicians and JCU will bring you a different topic and guest in each episode. Before we begin, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of this nation, their contribution to healthcare and the traditional owners of the lands on which we practice. Welcome to today's episode where I'm joined by Dr Pranav Kumar, one of our respiratory physicians at the base hospital. Pranav has qualifications in respiratory medicine from not only Australia, but India, America and the UK. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, uh, Dr. Halde. It's really nice. I'm really excited to sort of come and join this podcast. We wanted to talk a bit about asthma today, and I suppose it's a particularly important topic in light of COVID. How um, big a problem has asthma been in the COVID era? Oh, um, so basically, if we see that asthma has never been um, sort of un, uh, a lesser problem prior to the COVID era, if you see Really, if we estimate the percentage of cases throughout Australia, so nearly 10% of the population which um, sort of diagnose or sort of latent or coughed into asthma is present. It is one of the top 10 um, diagnoses presenting to our emergency department. And overall, if we compare the whole degree of severe asthma in the post-COVID era, it normally constitutes about three to five percent of the total cases of asthma. So, if you look at the whole, uh, this um, whole data is like the, uh, got a quite a mammoth problem at this moment. And um, what actually um, we see um, is um, um, with the COVID nineteen, I mean, though there was a misconception that normally. As um, after COVID, we get more cases of asthma or exacerbation. It is partly true and partly untrue, which I'm going to explain you in a later discussion of the time. What uh, I really want to put in here is it has intensified the stigma we had uh, um, around the asthma cough. And uh, we see there was a very interesting survey which said that um, nearly 43% of the Australians who, who saw someone coughing and they, um, they, um, they thought it to be contagious, though they are, um, you know, just a mild asthma or cough asthma. So overall, if you look at the whole data, I think the problem has gone and there has been more unmasking of the silent or cough-variant asthma to sort of become very persistent and severe form of asthma post-COVID era. Right. So COVID's helping to unmask those patients who have silent asthma, um, getting that reactive airways as a, um, a response to that inflammatory process. And yeah, that stigma around cough is really prevalent in our community. We've certainly noticed that in general practice. But yeah. 3 to 5% of the community is a big number. Yeah. Um, 
With asthma then, um, what increases the risk with COVID-19 in our patients? What are the sorts of things we need to be mindful of? Well, you know, that, uh, Dr. Hadley, we had this notion that, you know, the major drivers for all our, you know, asthma exacerbations are the respiratory viruses. And that holds true for time immemorial, like every uh, asthma exacerbation. If you look at the most of the data, we see nearly 80% or more of the cases from the, all the respiratory viruses. And since after the COVID, it was thought that, look, this is one of the coronavirus, is going to be no different. And then we're going to more and more number of increased severity or um, increased number of cases or exacerbations through the years. What uh, normally we have seen that, um, you, you know, how the COVID the viruses, they basically uses more uh, angiotensin in converting enzyme to expression. And um, that has also been contributed that, um, um, that there will be more severity of infection, there will be more infectivity um, as is what, one of the viruses. But all the epidemiological data or studies which we have so far has said that the incidence of these cases are pretty low, um, that there is no asthma, doesn't sort of, um, you know, in these people, uh, the cases hasn't gone up. And it has shown that the incidence of COVID-19 in people with asthma was pretty low. And the current evidence also supports that the notion that asthma does not increase the risk of COVID-19 um, was also true. But it all uh, saying this, uh, you know, the other aspect of it was severe COVID, which, um, which normally we see in the people who had asthma and has got an old age or they had different comorbidities in form of cardiovascular disease or diabetes or obesity. They are the ones who are the most uh, sufferers. And I also think that um, the, there are two... Oh, there are two data which I'd like to sort of mention here is uh, one from the Belgian uh, asthma registry or uh, SANI, which has got, they did a severe asthma network in Italy. They, they, they said that and they found out through their, you know, course of, uh, you know, the disease that severe asthma is not an independent risk factor for COVID-19. So, if you if you look at the whole picture, I think um, what we thought initially that um, you know we we're going to have more and more because it's one of the respiratory viruses, and then we're going to get more um, ACE two inhibitor expression and increased infection and increased severity, which wasn't the case. But only the people who had severe COVID and asthma were the people who belonged to the old age group or the people who had comorbidities um, uh, in the form of obesity, cardiovascular and uh, diabetes who were the worst sufferers. Yeah, certainly we learned a lot in that first 12 months about COVID and respiratory disease. So with some um, asthma, I wonder if you could take us through some of the different phenotypes and um, relate that to disease severity then please. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting question. And Dr. Abley, I recently had the 
European Respiratory Congress where they had a long debate about these phenotypes and the treatment part. And that was really interesting. Uh, you know, the, uh, what we know till date is uh, we got um, type 2 or TS2. So they had two type uh, TS2 high or TS2 low. These are the two phenotypes which normally we use. And uh, the difference between them is uh, TH2 high is mostly the 50% of the formal asthma diagnostic uh, diagnosis patients will have it. And uh, type 2, uh, before I sort of go further, I just say that they have this interleukin manifestation like IL-4, IL-5, 13, eosinophils, pheno, um, epitholoid barrier uh, dysfunction. All these can cause a protective effect on the SARS-CoV or COVID-19 infectivity and severity. Oh. In yes. So uh, this was a very interesting that how, despite of their, um, you know, there's um, expression of these, they had quite uh, protective effect. And mostly if you see, uh, there was also some studies which has shown if you got more eosinophils, they are more protective for this COVID-19 uh, uh, um, infection and severity. In comparison with TH2 type or more, they would call it TH2 low, they have more neutrophilic infiltrations and they are more mostly posse-granulocytic uh, inflammation where this is mostly non-allergic type and they had common association with people who had obesity related or smoking related or other comorbidities related in there. The, you know, as we know, there was more severity, there was more infectivity, and there was more mortality. Compared to IL-4-5, they have, if you see the biomarker, there were IL-6, which was predominant. And as you know, it's noted in one of the studies, these obese people will have increased leptins, and they uh, increased leptin will cause more TH1 pathway, and they will cause more severity and more infectivity. Right. So the higher the eosinophils, the more protective toward COVID. That's fantastic. And, yeah. of course, would um, include a lot of our patients that we have here in our region. Um, yeah. In terms of our asthma medications then, do we need to be tailoring those a little bit more to those different phenotypes to better address that risk of COVID-19 and the disease severity? That's a really interesting question. And that's really sort of very um, um, generated a lot of interest. And I think there will be a lot of, um, uh, a lot of studies um, has still to be carried out. But when we talk about the predominant, as we know that inhaled corticosteroid is one of the which, um, which is mainly used for the prevention and our protection as a, uh, as a preventer um, in asthma medication. If we think ICS per se, it, it says that it confirms some of the protections against the COVID. So there was initial, um, when we had COVID, when we started to have COVID and there was concerns that uh, using people on a high dose corticosteroid or inhaled corticosteroid will give them um, a sort of more mortality and more chances of severity of infection didn't come true in this study, which say that they causes a decreased expression of ACE2 
all the you know the where this this viruses are binding so there will be less areas less um, of their um, you know binding and rest severity of infection they also had some sort of um, uh, biochemically um, protein serinase in the lung they were also reduced and they helped in in overall modify the risk or confers kind of protection against the COVID. As we also know, um, Dr. Hadley, that all these um, ICS causes decreased inflammation. That's the main, main job. And, um, and in some studies, if you see, there's very interesting um, that some of the um, anti um, inhaled corticosteroid in form of cyclonazide or mometasone they um, they sort of uh, suppress this virus per se as well. So there's still study going on. So, but that was very interesting finding that some of these inhaled corticosteroid also suppress the SARS-CoV or COVID-19 infections. And uh, as you know, um, in our at the moment when we're treating, we're treating a lot of people with uh, with uh, when we say some sort of severity of their COVID, we we do use. Uh, inhale butycinide drugs, which is uh, very common to give them like at least, um, um, you know, 1,612 to 1,600 micrograms of butycinide. And that was based on a trial, which was a principal trial. And we say that the more inhale butycinide you use, um, and they will decrease the symptom burden and also helps us in the time of recovery and also reducing the total hospital admission. So that was a really, really a very good trial. And, and that also prompted us and helped us to sort of design this, um, putting this um, butycinide as a routine uh, kind of management for this COVID, which is not that severe, um, to decrease their symptom burden, as well as recover the reducing in the hospital admissions. Right. So those ACE inhibitors have that anti-inflammatory effect as do the inhaled corticosteroids, which we've known for many, many years now. That's that's really and, interesting. Mm. Yeah. And there was another one which was really sort of, we always thought that if you use uh, systemic steroid in these group of patients, like if you use, they will have more severity of the disease, isn't it? that will cause more while to sort of replicate. And um, uh, there was a recent uh, recovery trial, which did say that if you use the dexamethasone of like nearly six milligram per day for nearly 10 days, in those group of patients, it's a, it, it was found that 28-day mortality was very less. And oh. also the rate of their decrease, like rate of intubation in those group of patients. So that was really interesting. Um, um, finding and sort of uh, still sort of worked up for all these severity cases in the uh, what we get in the ICU. Yeah, certainly important information for you to have before the COVID patients started to appear in our part of the world. Dr. Kumar, can we ask about the biologics then too? So we know the ACE inhibitors, the inhaled steroids and the oral steroids are really effective. What about some of those newer biologics that we've um, been prescribing in the last few years? Yeah, and, and that's very, um, very um, I mean, I'm really particularly very interested in 
like in biologics. Um, and since we have biologics, it is really sort of, I have patients here who, I mean, a lot of them, like at least I know five of them who are my patients and are on biologics. They most of the time they presented to the hospital, got intubated and went to the ICU. And since they've been on biologics, they've been doing pretty well and sort of out of the hospital for most of the time. So um, that, that really sort of made me very interested. And I, post-COVID, I've seen that uh, we did have a, a sort of a, a lot number of cases which has come up with increased severity and there was a sort of they being leveled as a long COVID, but in fact, they were the COVID, uh, they were the asthma with a sort of gone into very severe kind of asthma, which were not responding to any treatment. And in a couple of them, I recently put them on biologics and they, they are recovered on their, on the pathway of them. And so if we see the types of biologics, we have um, like anti-IgE, IL-5 and IL-5 um, receptor antagonist. Um, we are mainly using here anti-IL-5 and anti-IL-5 receptor. And they normally they do is they block the type two um, uh, inflammation and confers a degree of uh, protection against COVID as well. Only thing um, which was sort of contradictory that in one stage we know that isnophils are protected these drugs basically, they got, um, uh, they have concerns of decreasing the tissue and the blood eosinophils. So we, we thought that we will get more disease uh, severity or increased severity in these cases. Um, and there was a study which all I, I think I've done this in our talk earlier that eosinophils of condom more than 150, they normally give you a decreased mortality. Um, but you uh, so this was a contradictory finding. One, one at one stage we were saying that, that if you got a more isnophils, they are protective to overall confirms the diag of uh, you know less risk from the COVID. At the same time, that we are using biologics, we say that they are providing a protection, though they are decreasing your isnophil counts to a very significant level or even to the normal. And there has been clinical evidence which shows that this use of biologics are pretty safe. It is, uh, it has shown that during the course of the follow-up that they are not associated with increased severity or mortality. So, um, so since been, uh, this study has come up, I think uh, we haven't sort of, um, uh, as soon as the patients are diagnosed and they are being um, they have been put on the biologics without any uh, much of, uh, you know, risk of that, that, you know, you, if you're using biologics in this group of patients, we don't, we previously thought it to be very, very cautious. And nowadays with these study coming up, even the, um, they have found out that they treat the, the severity cases and morbidity or mortality are less. So um, it is quite safe to use the biologics. Right. So particularly, as you said, for some of those patients who might be experiencing what we thought was a long COVID symptom, like persistent breathlessness, you think sometimes it can be undertreated breathlessness and the patients need to be more fully uh, worked up and more comprehensively treated then. Yeah. And, and that's that's very important point, as you said, oh, you know, the 
post-COVID, they will have more like an array of symptoms in the form of shortness of breath to chest pain to palpitation and all somatic kind of symptoms. And most of the time, if the people had COVID and it persisted for nearly four weeks or more, we just term it as a long COVID. Uh, but, but if we, we sort of seek seriously, because, you know, if you see this group of patients, in some of them, if you do a lung function, if they got a very severe sort of airflow limitation in people who got a persistent sort of shadowing or persistent peripheral area of consolidation, like an organizing kind of pneumonia on the CT scan, they need to be treated rather than labeling. So it's basically, if the symptoms persist, uh, there is nothing harm in doing some tests to confirm that we are not dealing with something which has been unmasked by the COVID or is still the COVID uh, long effect. Because in, uh, there was a recently a case who, was, uh, who has been labeled as a long COVID, has a lung fibrosis. That, um, that chap, I think he, lived, he was in, in, in Indonesia. And then he, when he came in, his half of the lung was fibrous. So he's finally mm -hmm. getting a lung transplant done, um, but was initially labeled as a long, a long COVID. So um, that that are the few of the things which really sort of makes you wonder that you know um, that of course the long COVID will present with lots of issues and lots of somatic problems and health problems. But um, doing some investigation and before we label them will be uh, a perfect way to deal with um, deal with this situation. Right. Okay. So for patients with persistent symptoms after COVID or worsening symptoms, it might be long COVID, but we need to be carefully ruling out other comorbidities like lung fibrosis, as you said. Is there yes. anything else we should be looking for, do you think? Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, if the patient has got, um, um, like, you know, the long COVID will have an array of symptoms. For the lung point of view, I would say that um, doing their chest X-ray and doing a CT scan or a, on a, on a lung function test won't harm us, but actually help us to rule out the other causes which can sort of mimic in uh, as a long COVID. Right. Oh, look, Dr. Kumar, thank you so much for your time and your expertise today talking about asthma in the post-COVID world. I had no idea it was so incredibly prevalent. Um, as you said, usually in the top 10 of our emergency department presentations and with severe asthma, of course, in primary practice, we can we can cope with that a little bit more enthusiastically, I suppose, by making sure those patients are having their inhaled corticosteroids at maximum dose. And as you said, just ruling out other conditions with a chest X-ray, a lung function test, and maybe even a CT chest. Yeah. Um, Dr. Kumar, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really, um, uh, indeed, a pleasure for me. Thank you so much. For more information about The Roundup or to share your feedback and ideas for future episodes, visit nqrth.edu.au forward slash roundup hyphen podcast or contact us at nqrth.mackay at jcu.edu.au.
We also want to advise that the views and opinions presented in this podcast are those of the speaker only and do not represent the views and opinions of James Cook University, Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs or Queensland Health. The content supplied in this podcast is not intended as medical advice and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs is an initiative of the Australian Government's Integrated Rural Training Pipeline and is facilitated by James Cook University in partnership with public and private hospitals, Queensland Aboriginal and Islander Health Council, Health Services, Aboriginal community controlled health organisations and general practice clinics.